Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP and Vice President of Publishing at ASHP. And I'll be your host today for this ASHP Practice Journeys podcast. Again this year, as a celebration of pride, ASHP will host four podcasts with LGBTQ leaders in pharmacy. With me today is Jennifer Moore. Jennifer retired after a 30 plus year career as a health system pharmacist who served in both direct patient care and leadership positions. She lives in Fountain Valley in Orange County in Southern California. Jennifer Moore, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing terrific. So nice to have this opportunity, Daniel. I really appreciate the opportunity to share. There's so many things that I want to talk with you about today. I absolutely loved reading your article in the Los Angeles Times. I believe it was published on February 13th, just in time for Valentine's Day, if I recall correctly. It was magnificent, and I really look forward to talking more about that. But why don't we first start off talking about your career, and how did you decide to pick pharmacy as a profession? It was a long process. I knew I wanted to do something in the biological sciences. Uh, I wanted to help people. So uh, I joined the the pre-med crew with your college and lasted about a year and thought, no, this isn't for me. So I went ahead and got degrees in biology and chemistry. And I go, now what do I do? And luckily, (laughs) I know, right? It's like, okay, I've been in school four years. Let's figure it out. They offered a program as a master's program. And it also resulted in a, a medical technologist licensure so I could work in the labs. And it sounded interesting, and we were going to be the physician's right-hand person to interpret labs. But as I went through the program, and I, I worked for about a year, there's um, it wasn't what I expected. It wasn't enough. I felt like I was cooped up in a lab. So I was working on my thesis for the master's, and we could use their medical library. And I happened upon a text. Uh, I just stumbled on it. It was Goodman and Guildman's uh, Pharmacological <laughs> Basis of Therapeutics. And I go, wow. That didn't scare you away? Oh, I, I was fascinated to see how drugs worked. That was it for me. It's like I, over a peanut butter jelly sandwich, I decided I want to go to pharmacy school. So uh, I started researching that. And uh, I had a few connections, which was nice. Uh, one gentleman was very um, connected at U, uh, USC. And so we talked and he was able to get me an offering at USC. But I'd heard about UC San Francisco, and that's the school I really set my sights on. So uh, I was lucky to get into that school, and uh, it took off from there. So you, you ended up going to UCSF? I did. I'd been in the Bay Area before with family, and I had a lot of friends up there. And we'd walk through the city of San Francisco. I'd go, what a great place to live for a couple of years. So it coincided with the opportunity to go to school there, and uh, I absolutely loved it. I loved the, the, the curriculum people, the professors. And that was at the time that they were really starting to push clinical pharmacy. And that was kind of one of the meccas. And uh, through my schooling at at UCSF, I started hearing of another institution, Long Beach Memorial. And I go, wow, this sounds like the place to go. And they'd have individual pharmacists that specialized in perhaps pharmacokinetics or antibiotics or pain control. And I go, gosh, I could go down there and learn from the best. So I was so excited. And I went through my three years and I was torn because I could have stayed in San Francisco for my fourth year rotations, 
but I decided, let me go to Long Beach. So I was lucky enough to get accepted for a lot of those student rotations there. And uh, I loved it. It was terrific. The people were so helpful, so knowledgeable, and they were real pioneers. So uh, it was a great experience. And that kind of segue into a residency there. So my goal was to meet everybody, to make a good impression, uh, to be able to do a residency at Long Beach Memorial. And I, I was so ecstatic when I got accepted. So that really kind of started my career path. And I stayed at Memorial for the next 34 years, uh, except for one brief trial of a different job, which didn't work. And they took me back at Memorial. So I was thrilled. That's amazing. Who was the director of pharmacy at Long Beach Memorial when you were there? At the it, was beginning? Bill, it was Bill Smith. And he was a, a giant. He was so pro-pharmacy. And he probably annoyed some of the C-suite people because he was so gung-ho. <laughs> but he would fight for us and fight for our programs. Uh, so he was a terrific person. And later, um, Byron Schweigert took over. Oh, gosh, what a great man. He had such a big influence on me. Uh, so knowledgeable, so great with people, just a warm, warm man. And he was the man that taught me, you get a lot more done walking through the halls of the institution than you'll ever get behind your desk. And uh, I found that to be true later in my years. That's a great leadership pearl to, to learn. You know, going back to Bill Smith for a minute and you know, your time at UCSF preceding your residency, it's, it's really interesting, the connection there, because we had a, an opportunity a few years back to publish an HHP, uh, a, a retrospective, so to speak, on the Ninth Floor Project at UCSF, where much of clinical pharmacy practice as we know it today began. So you truly did have an opportunity to bask in an environment where, where it was all happening and where it all happened. Yes, that ninth floor project blazed the trail and made it so easy for the next generations of clinical pharmacists. You wrote what I would describe as an honest, sincere, sometimes heart-wrenching, sometimes funny story for the Los Angeles Times. It was entitled, I'm Transgender. This is what happened when I finally told my wife. What made you decide to write this article? It had been such a long journey, and my wife stuck with me, and she was so helpful and so courageous and so strong. So the section's called LA Affairs, and they had advertised, we're looking for people to submit an essay before Valentine's Day about their, their partner, their spouse, or whomever it might be. I'd been kicking around the idea of writing a book. So many people say, oh, you really need to write a book. Here's kind of a, quote, average couple, and look where you guys have gone. So I had the, the beginnings of a book in my head, and I sat down to write that article. And I think they wanted like seven or 800 words, and it's just like a third of a page on the, the back section of the Saturday entertainment section. And it was so easy to write because it was from the heart, and I sent it in. And the editor, Renee Lynch, was fantastic. She called me up one night, and she goes, can we talk? I said, absolutely. She goes, I want you to realize that one, I like the article, it's great. She goes, but it's way too short. She goes, I wanna give you a full page to express more of your story. And I was going, wow, <laughs> this is awesome, thank you. And she goes, but I want you to think for the next four or five days and don't give me an answer before then, how is this gonna affect you and Mika's life? You'll really be coming out at that point. Our family and our friends knew and obviously work knew, but strangers really didn't know. We were very selective about who we shared this with. We were in hiding, but on the other hand, we weren't ready to expose ourselves to everybody. 
So we did, we sat and we talked and instead of four or five days, I think we decided in an hour, <laughs> we wanted to go ahead with it. Uh, we wanted to go ahead with it in the hopes that it would help other people, open a discussion, show the people you, you can be in a relationship and have it work. And also it was my love letter to Mika. I wanted really to put it out there, how wonderful she's been to me and is to me. So that, that really sparked uh, the interest in, in writing the article. So Jennifer, I can't help than asking you sort of a related question. When I reached out to you and asked you to consider doing a podcast for ASHP, was it a similar thought process again? Because in terms of now sort of coming out in the profession a bit, and did you and Mika have another conversation? Uh, very, very brief. I mean, it, it was a slam dunk. Uh, I enjoyed speaking with you, and, and it sounded like a great opportunity. It's a great way to get it out to the people that I worked with in the past and other people. I did reconnect with some of the people from pharmacy school due to that article. So to me, it, it was just a, a great way to share, but just the outpouring of support was incredible. It was so positive, almost to the person, that I felt extremely comfortable. I go, well, gosh, here's another format, another way to get this out. We've had a lot of people approach us and they have a spouse or a family member or a sibling or a friend that is trying to come out or trying to figure it out. And um, it's been terrific to be able to share with them and connect with them and see if we can offer some information. Everybody's so different, but to know that there are other people out there that may be struggling and to know you can reach out to somebody is huge. So I had no hesitation doing the podcast. I was very excited about it. That's wonderful. You said that it was it was a long journey. Do you want to mm -hmm. tell us tell us where it began and to start telling you know start with telling us your story? It's been a very very long journey, and it was so hard to understand for myself. Uh, I remember about being three years old and looking at children's books that books that were illustrated, and I'd see the girls in the dresses running around. I go, that's what I want to be, and it made no sense to me. Uh, there certainly was no one I could talk to. My father just passed uh, recently, and uh, my mom was Sorry. raising. Yeah, recently back then, but yes. <laughs> and my mom was raising my brother, who was six weeks old when he passed, and my sister was about five or six, and I was around three. So it was difficult because I had no one to reach out to, even if I knew what to say. But my earliest recollections of that is you never mention that. You never imply or ask about being feminine. Uh, you don't have any feminine traits. You don't have any curiosity about that because immediately you were uh, admonished or even shamed. So I learned very early to squelch that down and put it way in the back of my mind. But on the other hand, every minute of every day, you think about it. Now, I didn't have a name for it. I didn't understand it. I couldn't explain it. Uh, and so that's the way I kind of grew up, just feeling very different. I would see what the other boys did, and then I'd try to mimic or copy, then I'd stand back and go, did I do that right? You know, is anyone noticing? And all these instances throughout my childhood where if a boy did act feminine, they were immediately corrected. Since I didn't have a father, all these people were so gracious to step in and try and be a father figure, but it really was a constant bombardment of be male, be male, be male, be an achiever. And that really stuck in my mind. And some of it was beneficial because I became a very high achiever. I, I always wanted to do the best, always wanted to strive. And I think it morphed into if I'm 
doing my best. If I succeed in everything, I will be acceptable. I will be accepted. And and that was in what time frame, if you don't mind my asking mm -hmm. that? If, well, if... I was born in 1955. So I was aware of this before the 60s, but all through the 60s, as I went through grade school, it was very, very clear to me that you didn't mention this. So I was constantly on the search for information, you know, secretly. I remember seeing a comic book, you know, from Walt Disney, and it was uh, Huey, Dewey, Louie, the little ducks, Donald Duck's, you know, I guess nephews. And um, he told him, don't go out of the cabin. It's snowing. It's cold out there. Stay in the cabin. Well, as soon as he left, they went on out, and these ducks went out and played, and they went on a lake that had thin ice, broke through, and they were freezing to death. So they struggled to shore and they broke into another cabin and much to the chagrin, the only dry clothes they could find was a chest that had girls' dresses. So they were ticked off, but they had to put on the girls' dresses. So the moral to me seemed that, hey, don't disobey your parents, otherwise you'll be feminine and be shamed. And uh, it's just like, it was very clear to me I had to hide that. On the other hand, I loved that comic book. <laughs> it was my favorite. I go, wow, what a cool thing to have to do. So it's that mentality as I grew up is it was very secretive, very private, but such a yearning and a longing to be something different. At that point, you had no idea of transgenderism. Uh, there was nothing in the literature. There was no internet. So it was bits and pieces that I would find and try to put those things together. Another instance was the Sunday comics, Dick Tracy. And there was a rather effeminate criminal, and he wore a fedora and had a red rose in it, and it fell off during the commission of a crime. And Dick Tracy picks it up, looks at it, and goes, ah, a horticulturist. I said, oh, finally, I know what I might be. So I ran to the <laughs> World Book Encyclopedia and pulled out the H through I volume, thumb through, and I go, oh, my gosh. You know, I was so disappointed because I thought something might identify myself, and that didn't work. And, you know, it's, I did the typical boy stuff. School was easy for me, fortunately. Um, I loved the sciences. I think uh, there was a, a teacher, Dr. Patel, and he was a seventh grade biology teacher. And his classroom was double-sized and filled with uh, little mammals in cages and terrariums and a huge insect collection. And we used to take off on Saturdays and go on insect safaris with him. And uh, he really kind of took me under his wing and I did special projects, and uh, it was an awesome inspiration. So that kind of made me decide, yes, I really want to go into the biological sciences. Uh, from you, even, early age. you even became, you even were an Eagle Scout, weren't you? I was. It's You had to achieve. You had to work hard because sooner or later you'll be acceptable. So I, I went through the program so quickly that I guess all the head leaders were discussing whether or not to award it to me or to make me wait, and they went ahead and gave it to me. But I got to tell you, Daniel, I never felt like I earned or I deserved any of the awards or accolades because if they really knew, if they knew who I was, I wouldn't be deserving of any of this. So it was a very convoluted way to think I know now, but that was my, my mantra, my mindset is uh, you're not acceptable, but keep working maybe someday. And so it continued to go like that through high school. I had great friends and I got active in sports. Uh, I found out I could run. <laughs> it might have been like Forrest Gump running and running, but uh, I did very well in cross country. And uh, that was some solace. That was some time where I didn't have to think about this. I went to Whittier College, which was an awesome experience, a small campus. And um, 
you got to know the professors and I house sat and babysit for the professors. It was pretty interesting. But even there, I never felt connected to anybody. And I joined a, a society. It's like a version of a non-national fraternity. So I went through the society and did all the beer drinking and macho stuff. <laughs> it was still, it's like, if they only knew, you know, it, it was difficult. And all around you, people would be making jokes and not necessarily intending to be painful to anybody, but, you know, they'd go down to Hollywood Boulevard and watch the, the trans, transvestites or we're calling cross-dressers now and, you know, make fun and give them a bad time. So I knew this had to be a hidden, hidden thing. You didn't share with anyone at that point in your life? No, no, no one at all. And as I went through college, I was feeling more and more depressed and more and more isolated. One thing that was really remarkable to me that just flashed on yesterday was when I was in the Boy Scouts, I go to camp every summer and there's a place called Inspiration Point. And it's out on this promontory, very isolated, very long, trees everywhere. And you can look out over this valley of conifer trees. And I remember the wind and that's all you heard was the wind whistling through these trees. And it was the most lonely sound that I ever heard. And all through my life, whenever I'd hear trees rustle like that, it made me feel so alone and all by myself. It just struck me as how deep that reaction to the sound lasted, you know, how long it lasted over 50 years. So that was rather incredible. And I'll talk about that as we talk about retirement because it was striking. But uh, going to Whittier College was a great education, but I felt so down. I felt so depressed. I felt so detached. I always wanted a girlfriend. I knew I wasn't gay, and I met gay people and gay friends, and that didn't fit. Uh, the internet really wasn't around yet, so you might see an occasional article. Maybe Dear Abby had an article and a letter somebody wrote in, my neighbor likes to dress, and when they dress, they want me to call them Sue, and I don't know what to do. What should I do when they see him? Basically, Abby said, well, keep your kids away, for God's sake. You know, this, this person's very disturbed. I go, I'm not disturbed. <laughs> it's like, that's not me. It doesn't fit. And if you notice, most of the representation in the cinema, you know, it's Silence of the Lamb. It's either some brutal, crazed psycho, or it's in joke, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire, and those kind of things, where it's more of a playful approach. But none of that fit me. It didn't make any sense for me. So I got into therapy, you know, at that point uh, in uh, college, probably my junior year or so. And uh, it really wasn't helpful. It was a way to release stress, but... They had no clue. They didn't know what to do with this. And when I brought up and mentioned to them, they go, oh, okay, that's, that's kind of nice. And I said, yeah. And I remember reading a book in second grade about, I think, Hiawatha or an Indian brave. And in that, they had a little section in that book. And if you were an Indian boy and you didn't want to hunt and, and, and fight and, and do that type of thing, you just walked over to the woman's area where they're working and they gave this boy an Indian's dress and that was it. You know, she became accepted as, as a woman from that point on. It was not a big deal. I remember that book. It just burned into my mind. So I went back to the library and I found it all those years later and brought it to the psychologist. I go, see this, this is what I'm thinking. He goes, well, that's, that's not be a piece of the puzzle. I'm going, oh, okay, kind of a letdown. So nobody really knew. I think over the years, I've seen over a dozen different psychologists and uh, there are only a few that either knew or were able to help. So I went to see these people. I went to a group therapy they produce, and I actually shared with the group. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. They were very supportive. But nothing else. I was like, 
okay, I shared this and nobody really cares. You know, it's like I wear women's clothing sometimes. Okay. You know, I had my own place by then and I could have a few items, but I think everyone that I've met that cross dresses has a tremendous sense of peace and satisfaction when they dress. It just brings you back down to earth. It's kind of like everybody's you're on sine wave, only you're on the opposite to them. So when everybody's tip top, you're down at the bottom. And when you dress, your sine wave really does align with everybody. And it's the best feeling. But typically back then, this is in the 70s, when I met people later in my life, they would relate their 70s experience. And you would feel so absolutely and guilty and ashamed that that sense of relief would get you through for a while. But, you know, you tore those clothes off. Some people would throw them away and you swear, I'm never doing this again. Uh, there are people that do entire purchase. You may have thousands of dollars of hair pieces and jewelry and dresses and makeup and the purge. I'm getting rid of this. I'm never doing it again. And it's such a relief to go, okay, I'm finally cured, but it comes back. You, you can't cure it. I went to another psychologist that was highly recommended. And after a few sessions, I shared, you know, I like to dress in women's clothing sometimes. It really makes me feel whole. And he said, oh my gosh, he goes, that is disgusting. He goes, I knew a few people in the seminary that did that. He was a former priest. He goes, I knew a few people in the seminary that would dress like that. He goes, when I heard about it, it was so disgusting. I had to go to a strip show, a strip club, just to get that bad taste out of my mouth. And I said, oh my gosh, you know, I respect this guy. He goes, you know, when you're a kid, you do kid stuff. When you're a man, you, you put the childish things away. I go, oh my gosh, he's right. And so I purged. I got rid of everything. I didn't think about it or tried not to think about it. I tried to extinguish the, not only the behavior, but the thought. In about three months, I was so blackly depressed. He goes, ah, I don't know what to do. I can't help you anymore. I'm like, oh, great. Okay. So I met another psychologist and uh, she, I told her, you know, I don't know what's going on with me. I thought I was cured, but I don't know what's going on with me, but there's a little black pea in my brain. And if I could figure that out, I think I would feel so much better. She goes, gosh, let's find that black pea. And so we poked around and the cross-dressing thing came up again. I go, oh my gosh, I can't be a cross-dresser. You know, by the time I was married and I had kids, I go, this is not compatible with my life. I can't do this. She goes, well, take a breath. She goes, why don't you try to let it go and enjoy it? Why don't you just experiment? Doesn't mean you're doing anything permanently, but just hug it and wrap yourself around it. And oh my gosh, I did. And um, it was fantastic. Such a relief. I actually went out and bought an entire outfit. And I was too shy to wear it the first session. So we just put it on the couch next to me. And then I started dressing, you know, in the restroom before I do my therapy session. And it was fantastic because you need to nurture this. You need to accept it. And I go, okay, but now what do I do about my wife? She goes, well, and I go, you know, I have to be honest. She goes, yeah. So it ended up, I did share it with my first wife and uh, it did not go very well at all. It was very, very hard for her, and I totally understand that. We went to see a therapist that she was using, and as we talked about it, she got physically ill and had to run down to the restroom. And I remember turning to her therapist go, not a good sign, is it? And she goes, that's not a good sign. She goes, you might get tolerance out of this relationship, but you wouldn't get any more than that. How long had you been married at that point? Quite a while, because we married when I was in college, and then all through pharmacy school and moving back down to Southern California and buying a house and then starting a family. So it had been a good 14 years, I think, of, of marriage or maybe 13 years around in there. So 
we worked on it because I never failed anything. I didn't want to be a divorced person. I didn't want to hurt her. And I sure didn't want to leave my boys, you know, by the time I had three boys. So back to therapy and um, we worked on it and we worked on it. And I remember asking her therapist, who was very well known and was a professor at one of the schools locally. I said, will I ever be happy? He goes, mm, I don't think so. He goes, you might, you might be content at some point in your life. I go, oh my gosh, is this some kind of psychological ploy or is this guy for real? Why can't I be happy? So we worked a little more and we decided we'd do the don't ask, don't tell. So I could do it once a month. She would know where I was going, but she didn't ask, she didn't tell. I had some stuff stored at the house until her niece saw it. And her niece said, these are such cute outfits. How come you don't wear them? And my ex was going, uh, uh, uh. So I had to get it out of the house. I found a very cheap little office, a hundred bucks a month, tiny thing, maybe eight by 10 foot. And so I could move all my girl stuff there. And once a month I could, I could uh, go out on the town. So I'd, Saturday afternoon, I'd go and get ready. I joined a club and there were about three clubs back then of, of cross-dressers and uh, different amount, different amount of security for each club. The club I joined was very secretive and they had multiple interviews before you were accepted and you had to be voted on. But it was a good group of uh, professionals and they were all very successful and they were all extremely secretive. And uh, so once a month they went out to dinner and different venue, usually ones that were accepting or they had a back entrance. And uh, that served the purpose for a while. I remember kind of the turning point in our relationship was I went down to San Diego with a, a cross-dressing friend and um, it was awesome to go out in public during the day, dressed to have conversations as Jennifer with people, just absolutely incredible. We went to eat in a place with family style Italian food and everybody was so nice. We went to see the Rocky Horror Show, which was like totally appropriate. <laughs> and uh, we went out to a bar and, and we just had a great time. And when I went back, my ex-wife was extremely unhappy and she asked for a divorce. And I said, well, if that's going to make you happier, I, I totally get it. You know, we were going to co-parent in, in that. And um, I think from that point on, I never wanted to leave my boys without a father because I'd grown up without one. I swear, I swore that would not happen to them. How so, old were your boys at that point? Well, my youngest was about three months. So he was a newborn. And I had a three-year-old and a six-year-old. So about three years apart. So I wasn't going to be an every other weekend dad. There's no way that was going to happen. So I searched for a house that I could afford and money was tight, even though I was making money. She wasn't working. She's going to school again. So um, I was supporting everybody, but I did find a house and it was a little two bedroom house. I'm still there and uh, it was perfect for our needs because we could get in and afford it. And I stacked two of them up in bunk beds and the other kid was in his, his crib and uh, we took off from there. So it, it was a, quite a journey to that point. So there I am, you know, I got the young kids and I'm working like crazy to, to pay for everything, but I had some freedom. You know, I had an opportunity to, to go out and do things. And I joined a speakers bureau and it was a group of cross-dressers and we'd go to the various state campuses, uh, the junior colleges, and we'd talk on transgenderism or on transsexual cross-dressers. And those topics, we'd have an educational bit, definitions, we'd share our stories and then we'd open up to questions and answers and it was totally mind-opening and it felt so good to have people look at you listen to you and interact with you and we felt like okay here we're doing something besides going out to dinner we're actually giving back to the community 
It was a wonderful experience. So I was able to do that quite a bit. And my life goal was to find a partner, you know, someone that would truly accept me. Um, I thought I was going to have to accept the guy part. The girl part was always going to be hidden. So I started dating different women. And um, over the next 10 years, I probably dated 100 different women and had some short-term good relationships. You always have to decide, am I going to tell somebody about this? When do I tell them about it? Will they accept it? And most of the reactions weren't totally negative, but they weren't accepted either. So at that point, I didn't know what to do. And after several years, I went back to that therapist that encouraged me to dress and encouraged me to accept that feminine part. And I remember I was so excited because I had an outfit that looked very appropriate. Uh, I was going to get out of work early and fight the, the rush hour traffic uh, to get home so I could change into Jennifer and then go see her and show her the progress I made over the last four or five or nine years or whatever it was. And uh, of course, I had a late patient and needed something desperately. So we fixed that up and traffic was bad. So I go, well, I just got to go. So I went as drab dressed as a boy instead of drag dressed as a girl. So I went in drab and uh, I found her place. It was just a little cottage behind a house. And she actually was coming out to the curb to flag me down. And we finally connected. I found the address. There weren't any Google Maps back then. It was outdated Thomas Brother books. And it was nice to see her and catching up. And we talked about the kids and talked. And then we got down to business. And she goes, what do you really want? I said, I want to find my partner. I want to find a soulmate. She goes, well, you're sure not going to do it this way. Look at your eyebrows. They're thinner than mine. The only woman you're ever going to meet that would accept Jennifer would be very airy-fairy. And that's not going to be a good match for you. And I said, yeah, but I said, gosh, it's so difficult when I stopped. She goes, think about this. What would happen if you lost just one of your boys over this? If one son turned against you, what would that do to you? I go, oh my gosh, you're right. And I quit. Cold turkey. Just stopped. Um, I made plans the next weekend to get rid of everything. By that point, I built this secret walk-in closet and it was floor to ceiling and wall to wall with, with everything I, I bought and collected and treasured over the last, you know, almost a decade. And it was funny because I had a really good friend that was a cross-dresser. Uh, we'd met at a cross-dressing Christmas party. It's funny. We looked across the room. I go, gosh, somebody's wife is very striking. And he did the same looking at me thinking, oh, very striking. We started talking. Oh, my gosh, cross-dresser. <laughs> but we became great friends. And um, we did a lot of outings together. We went to conventions, which are uh, amazing. Go to a cross-dresser convention, you might have three or 400 cross-dressers in attendance. And there'd be seminars, but mostly parties. <laughs> and uh, big gala ball on Saturday and everybody in gowns. Uh, just an incredible time. So we really bonded through that. We bonded doing other things as well. But only thing I could think of is after meeting that therapist that night was, oh, I got to talk to my friend. And so he's on the East Coast. I called him the next day and we both said, guess what? I go, well, you first. He goes, uh, I'm purging. I'm giving it up. His wife had said no more. And it's me or, or cross-dressing. So he was going to said, that's what I'm doing. So we, we spent the weekend uh, both purging on the opposite ends of the coast, getting rid of everything. And, you know, it did feel like a relief because you think, okay, I'm finally done with this. I'm finally done. So that's the way it went. And I finished it up and I thought I was done and turned the walk-in closet into a study room and uh, for the boys. And I thought it would be okay. So the, the story of where you go on again and off again, 
and it was so hard back then. Now, thank goodness, kids are getting support and help and information. The average age for somebody to come out as transgender now is about 18 and a half years. And I think before is probably more of an average of 40 to 50 to never. They just wouldn't come out. So how long after that purging experience did Mika enter your life? Oh my goodness, that was the best thing ever. <laughs> it was two years, almost uh, two, two and a half years. And uh, it was a fun story. And, you know, again, I thought I was done. I continued to date and met a lot of fun, nice people. But I realized I had to be in a very good position myself in order to attract somebody. I had to have my finances together, my attitude and emotions together. And I was just at work. And uh, there was a woman that set us up. And she knew I was a pharmacist. Mika was an audiologist. And Mika was supposed to give a lecture on ototoxicity from various drugs. And this person goes, oh, I know the perfect person for you to reach out to. So she connected us that way. And I think Mika sent me an email. And she's surprised because I responded right away. Because I, I, I love doing research anyhow. I didn't know anything about her at all. So we talked briefly on the phone. She explained what she wanted. I said, yeah. So I, I pulled a bunch of references and kind of consolidated them and put the information together. And I called her up. And she goes, oh, just put it in the snail mail. Just mail it to me. And, and I go, well, well, you work on the other side of campus. She goes, yeah. I said, well, why don't we meet for coffee and I can give it to you there. She goes, well, all right. So I'm thinking, she sounds cute. <laughs> so I walked over there with a big stack of papers and metal envelopes and I saw her and it was the most incredible sight, Daniel, because she was approaching this plaza with a coffee cart coming from the West in the morning. I could swear there was a sun aura behind her. She just had that sparkling, bright personality and such warmth. And I just said, oh my goodness, this is a woman for me. And we hadn't even met. <laughs> so we, we got coffee and we talked. And um, I said, yeah, I have three boys. And she goes, oh, I have two boys. And they're two and five. Said, oh, good, good. I said, they start any sports? And she goes, yeah, yeah, the older does soccer. I go, oh, very cool. I'm looking for a segue here. And I go, oh, how's dad like going to the soccer games? Well, that's not really in the picture. I said, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I said, really? And she goes, yeah. I said, oh, OK. Well, here are the papers, and I wanted that cup of coffee to last forever. But I said, well, why don't we go out and get a drink sometime? She goes, yeah, I'd love to. But she goes, man, I am super busy. I got the kids. I got this. I said, that's okay. I'm flexible. So we arranged to meet downtown Huntington Beach uh, outside this bar. And she had a little bit of time between her hair appointment and having to pick up her boys from the sitter. So we met there, and we had drinking appetizer. I think we had a 45 minute date before she had to rush out. So I walked it down to her car and we just kept talking. And that's kind of the way it went is these short, quick little dates and coffee dates. Um, we go out to lunch or have lunch together at work and all her friends from her office would, would come in and sit down by us. And they were nice. I'm going, it's kind of hard to get any alone time with this woman. But I guess they were sizing me up. <laughs> they were protective of Mika. So um, I got to meet all our friends, and I guess eventually I thought I was okay because uh, they left us alone enough. So we looked forward to our lunches, and we went out or had lunches almost every day. And wow. after a couple, yeah, it was so fun. After a couple months, I said, "Let's go snowboarding." She goes, "Oh, I'm not very athletic." I go, "No, you can do fine. We should go snowboarding." She goes, oh, "I'll think about it." Well, in the meantime, I found out she's not doing anything for herself. I said. Why don't you look at these community classes? They're like, you know, a block from your apartment. 
She goes, well, maybe I'll take up knitting. I go, why don't you do something athletic for yourself? She goes, I'll do kickboxing. I go, cool. So I go every Tuesday after work and watch the kids and we do homework and play games and she'd go off to kickboxing and it really worked out well. And then I, she goes, I go, snowboard? She goes, I can't. I'm at, I go, you're athletic. You're doing kickboxing. So we went snowboarding. And her folks were kind enough to watch the kids overnight. And so I go to pick her up and um, we're loading the car. And she has this huge stack of women's style magazines and fashion and, and home magazines. Oh, what's she doing with this? And she had like three or four bottles of wine. I go, oh my gosh. So we get in the car and we drive up there and had a great conversation. Check into the lot. Well, it's a little rundown cabin, which was fine, but it had a hot tub that was powered by this old creaky water heater. I might have even been wood fired. <laughs> so threw everything in there, went snowboarding. She took a lesson, and uh, it's just I was so enchanted by her. Every time we came down the slope, I'd do a run by her class, and she'd come out and we'd talk, and she loved it. So we did her lesson, and we went back to the cabin afterwards, and kind of warmed up by a fire and uh, went out and grabbed a burger at this little joint. It was perfect and came back. And all of a sudden I realized she doesn't know that I'm falling in love with her. And we talk and she goes, I thought you just wanted to be friends. And I said, well, yeah, but, and all of a sudden it dawned on her and we stayed up almost all night just talking and we went out on the porch and watched the stars till two or 3 a.m. And uh, from that point on, I knew who I wanted in my life. It was, it was magical. And uh, thank goodness she felt the same way. <laughs> it probably wasn't as quick for her, but so that's how I met Mika. And uh, that's how she came into my life. And uh, I totally thought I was done. I figured there's no, no interest in being feminine anymore. I have my soulmate. And uh, it kind of went through the years that way. And I felt great. I seriously felt very, very good for so many years that I didn't even think about it. Then how long after that, after that magical snowboarding trip, how long after that did you get, how long was it before you got married? Uh, we got married in 2011. So we dated quite a while. We'd both been divorced and it was tough. And we both swore we'd never get married again. And we had the kids and we figured we'd move in together, but we wanted to make sure those kids all mesh. So now we had kids that, you know, start off at two, five, oh gosh, six, nine and 12 or something. So it was a house full of boys and we wanted to make sure because we figured if it wasn't finances that broke up a couple, it was raising the children. So we wanted to make sure they all got along and, and frankly, they meshed so well. It was so fun to see them share things and the older brothers could give advice and uh, it worked out very, very well. So we dated seven years before and I was the one that, that cracked. <laughs> I just, uh, we went to Maui and they had a wedding ceremony on the beach. And I thought, hmm. so I grabbed a, a brochure and tucked it in my suitcase. And uh, about a year later, I started thinking about that. I go, oh, I'd be so foolish not to, to marry this woman. So at that point, I decided we would. And uh, I had proposed to her in December. And we waited until about July. And we got married. Just went to City Hall because we both had done it. But we honeymooned in Maui again, which was magical. And... Uh, so it'll be our 10th anniversary this July. That's amazing. Congratulations. Congratulations. Now, at the same time, your career was advancing, right? And you yeah. were actually getting ready to move into a leadership position at Long Beach Memorial, right? I was. I was. I love doing clinical. 
that's the thing with Long Beach Memorial. There's so many good people there and positions are so coveted. Uh, I started off as a vacation reliever and then I got into um, drug information for several years. And I did pharmacokinetics for a couple of years and I did pediatrics for a couple of years. And my goal is to break into one of the clinical floors, you know, kind of a replica of the knife flow project, but I never <laughs> get in there. It's like, there's always somebody ahead of me, but I love PK. I love drug information, but you know, every five years, the economy would come and go and payments, medical payments would be tough. And the hospital would, would go through, um, you know, rifts, you know, reduction in workforce. And it ended up, even though I'd been there for so long, I still wasn't very high on the list because we have people still working there. They've been there 45 years. We had somebody even go 50 years. Nobody wants to leave it. It's great leadership, great practice, great people. And we love the patients. Wow. Yeah. So I came, it came down to an opportunity where I could go over to home health, do the home infusion program, or there were some other choices. But I go, let me do home health. I got all these kids. I'm by myself now. Be much easier to have a set schedule for these boys. And it, it was great. It was different. There was some clinical, but it was a lot of uh, paperwork and juggling and coordination between the discharge planners and home health nursing. And uh, I did that for quite a few years and we kept losing our managers. It's like they would come and go and nobody ever wanted to step up, which is, was a problem. I think it's it's fairly universal. It's, people love the clinical, but they're not ready to get pushed into management. Few people go management track, but at least in my experience, um, there was a lot of hesitation. I think it's gotten better with a new generation of kids, but uh, back then nobody wanted to take that step forward. So we didn't have a spot vacant for our manager of the area for about a year and a half, maybe longer. And it wasn't just home infusion. We also had a large ambulatory infusion center. So we needed somebody to guide us for both those. And as years went by, you know, Joint Commission was coming up closer for inspections, the state board, uh, things weren't getting done. We tried to kind of do it among the pharmacy staff, but it wasn't the same as having a manager. So my director, who I really admired, his name was Kelly. And uh, he said, oh, I think I finally found the right candidate. I go, oh, that'd be great. Thank you. We need somebody there. And he goes, it's you. And I said, oh, no, 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 that's <laughs> not me. He goes, yeah, he goes, give me a year, I'll make you a great manager. And I, I guess at that point, it wasn't much of a step up in pay, but I've been doing clinical for so long and home infusion for so long. I go, okay, I think I can help out here. I love the staff, you know, they're like family to me, let's do it. And it, it was kind of funny because it, he had to talk to me for a good hour. And I actually felt like, oh my gosh, what have I accepted? But uh we kind of broke up the meeting. I said, well, is there a secret handshake I need to have now that I'm moved into the big time in the management? And he goes, no, he goes, well, I'll show you the secret dance. <laughs> <laughs> so he breaks into this dance and I'm just laughing. And uh, it was very bittersweet because that was the last time that I would see him alive. Um, that was like four days before um, I was supposed to start that position. And um, I was off uh, the next, I guess, two days later, I was off on a Thursday. I started getting all these calls on my cell phone, my work phone and my private phone. And people would hang up or it'd be whispered and they said, we're on lockdown. And I go, what? You know, I, I didn't understand. And they, you know, click off. And um, I started getting calls from nurses in the hospital in the ED. And uh, it turned out that um, Kelly had been shot. And um, it's still tough to talk about. Um, there was an employee there that he was a pharmacy technician and nobody really figured out the the how he rationalized it, but he had a pistol and he 
uh, murdered his manager in the outpatient pharmacy office. And then he walked through the hospital halls and um, Kelly had heard, he was the executive director for ambulatory and he'd heard that there was a shooting an outpatient and he was running over to see our building was just across the street and uh, the shooter met him in the street and shot him and uh, kept shooting him and uh, it, it was a horrific horrific event and, and people told me in so much detail that I really didn't want to hear and I'm sorry that I did hear it but um, yeah. yeah so that became a, a incredible turning point in everybody's life. It affected so many people and so deeply. And um, you, you speak poignantly in your article about how it really was a turning point in your life and mm -hmm. the just the effects that it had on you. It did. It did. And first thing I did when the CEO came by was, you know, we talked and she'd been a student of mine even, and uh, she was a great leader and a great mentor. And I said, I don't want this new job. She goes, don't worry about that now. We're just, we're going to take care of everybody and sort it out later. And um, she goes, by the way, there is a forensic psychologist and he specializes and we have multiple ones to hire the hospitals providing, but you know, here's his information. Like then he tries to, well, I'm not going to do that. And after a couple of days, I said, I better go see this guy. And he was very uh, intuitive and I think that I felt very comfortable with him from the start and I was definitely crashing. I was having very bloody, violent nightmares and I was only sleeping a couple hours a night. And I think it's what's true for so many of my staff as well. But I talked to him and eventually I, I said, by the way, there is this part of me that, you know, really wants to be feminine. He goes, you know, don't worry about it. Here's what happens when there's a, a trauma in your life. Think of it as one light bulb on a Christmas string, a string of Christmas lights. That trauma lights up. Every trauma in your entire life will light up as well. It's all in series and they all will start flashing colored lights. And that's what's going on in your brain right now. So he goes, take that feminine dream or part or need of yours and put it in a box and put it in the back, back shelf of your closet, you know, the brain, put it in the back shelf of, of your brain. He goes, you may deal with it sometime, you may never deal with it. And I think in hindsight, his job was to get us patched up and get us back on our feet and back to work. And, and it seemed to work. But after a while, I just started getting so deeply and darkly depressed. I mean, I struggled on, but that was April 16, 2009. So it, um, it really affected me. But eventually, I accepted these dreams as normal for the rest of my life. I'd wake up and uh, I'd be drenched in a cold sweat and I'd get up and I would change and then I'd lay awake until, you know, four or five in the morning, then I'd get up and go to work. And eventually just said, okay, this is, this is my life from now on. And I would sleep for a couple nights from exhaustion and then have those dreams. But it became very routine. I know it sounds strange, but it felt, I go, this is my new normal. So, I mean, we went on and Mika was such a, a delight in my life and all the boys. And uh, so I did propose to her and we got married in, in the interval and things were very, very good but I would still have those dreams. And uh, I decided I got to push on. Same as always, you got to do your best. You'll be accepted. I'll be okay. So I did keep pushing on. And the interim director left. We had two, we had one that came in and took the directorship over my spot. I liked him, but he, he lasted about two years. 
and he encouraged me to take over that executive director spot that he was vacating. And um, I agreed to do it on an interim basis. And again, I have no idea why. <laughs> it's like, I guess I felt somebody needs to steer the ship for a while until they find somebody. Well, it took about two years. And during that time, there was a, a three-story rebuild, remodel of our infusion center. And it was a huge project with multiple physician offices and research centers and a huge ambulatory a pharmacy and ambulatory pods. So it was all consuming. It was, you know, 40, 50, 60 hour weeks, plus one of the other pharmacies. And I think that added to my stress. And I think the Christmas lights started lighting up again. I was crashing. And I knew this psychologist from years ago, and I went and talked to her and explained it. And she said, well, I don't know much about, you know, transgenderism, but I can work with you. I said, all right. I felt good about her. That forensic psychologist told me to put it in a box, but at least he gave me a name for it. He goes, you're transgender. And that's the first time I ever heard that. And so that went into the box you know, with all the other things. But <laughs> I told this, this psychologist, Gina, I said, you know, I think I'm transgender. And so we worked on it. And um, I said, I can't tell Mika. I can't lose Mika over this. I need to be able to cope and be happy, not be dreaming violent dreams and coming home depressed and going to bed. I need to be a good father and, and, and a good husband and she helped but there's nothing you could do about it it is who I was but I decided I remember the last time was a Tuesday meeting with her and I said I can't tell Mika and I went to the car and I just cried and I came home and Mika tried to talk to me on the stairs and I couldn't speak because I was so choked up and I went to bed and I lasted about four days and then I said I can't do this and I have to tell Mika well all the boys were gone that Saturday, following Saturday. And so we sat down and uh, I said, I don't know how to tell you this. I never meant to put you in this position. I could hardly speak. And she was so afraid and so worried. And I told her, you know, ever since I was three years old and I went through the whole story of my life and she listened and we cried and um, she hugged me. I was so afraid I was going to lose her. She was so relieved that it wasn't like I wanted a divorce or that I was cheating or I had a terminal disease. She goes, that's it. I go, well, that's a lot. She goes, I know, but it beats the alternatives. I go, okay. And I go, I don't know where this is going to go. And she goes, it doesn't matter. So we kept talking and um, finally she turned to me. She used to always, the thing I admired about Mika was whenever there's a problem, she goes, I got this. I got this. I can do it. And I was just always surprised no matter how bad it was. I got this. And this time she goes, we got this. And I said, oh my gosh. And then she goes, we have to go shopping now. We need a wardrobe. I said, what? And she goes, yeah, let's go. I said, okay. So, and it, it turned into a real journey and neither of us knew where it was going to go. But uh, as Mika would say, you know, we went through the highest highs and we also hit the lowest lows. And the first year, we thought, it's going to be a private thing. It's going to be in the bedroom behind locked doors. We don't have to tell anybody. Nobody needs to know. And um, it was good. It was, it, was, it was enough, I thought. Well, as the year developed, I was so happy, but I was still so very restless. It didn't feel right. And I could underdress where you could put women's underclothing under your, I was wearing scrubs. You know, so I went to Victoria's Secret and had a ball, and I'd wear that to work under. And it gave some relief. But it's like you're still boxed in a room. Uh, we'd go out once a month to the chic meetings, to the, the cross-dresser club meeting, but that felt so artificial. 
because you had to go somewhere and everybody was so secreted. And I didn't want to be a secret. Also, that club is for cross-dressers. So when they know you're transgender, uh, it's a very polite kick in the butt <laughs> out to the career bureau. And uh, so I was very, probably the nicest ask I've ever had of get out. <laughs> but so we did. And I went back to see Gina. I'd see her every, I don't know, four or six weeks for a tune-up. And uh, she goes, I think it's time to tell the boys. And I'm going, oh, my gosh. Uh, and it just felt right. I go, she's right. I talked to Mika, and we go, yeah. Mika goes, I would be so angry with you if something would happen to you. And for some reason, I had to explain it to the boys. I said, you're right. So we'd run across a book called uh, Sharing the Good News. And it's how do you come out, you know, no matter what it is. But this was mainly for for transgender folks. And it was, this is not a, oh, gee, I have this horrible problem. Oh, I'm so ashamed, I need to share it. This was, you know, I've been struggling with something for a long, long time. And I feel so great about this. And it's such strength, I wanted to share it with you. And so that mental approach was huge. And, and that's what we adopted. And so the idea is we have five boys and, you know, two of them were like 800 miles apart. So I got to tell the boys kind of close together but I don't want to tell them in a group because I want them to have a chance to absorb and respond without feeling the family pressure. So there were trips up to Northern California, trips to San Diego. We told the younger two who are still at home and uh, it was a shock. The younger ones took it rather well. The youngest said, well, I could transgender friends at school. <laughs> she goes, there's no problem. But I know it took them a while and it took years to really absorb and you know, the first time they saw Jennifer it was tough, especially on my oldest boys. Uh, but they were they were so great about it. I had so much love and support. So it's like, okay, they know. So we kind of went through this androgynous phase where I could wear a girl's T-shirt under my scrubs. Um, we went out more. We didn't have to wait for a chic meeting. We could just go out on our own. Uh, we didn't have to worry about people seeing us per se. Maybe the neighbors. We were a little secretive. I remember. We had a mechanic working on my son's car and he was working late into the night and he had a couple floodlights on the car and we couldn't go out the front door. It's right in the driveway. It's like our car was at the curb. So we snuck around the back of the house and <laughs> opened the gate very quietly. And we go, there he is. He's under the hood. We can go. And I'd forgotten I installed these huge floodlights that were motion detectors. <laughs> so we took one step out and the whole yard lit up. It's like, oh my gosh. It's like, uh. so we got in the car and took off. I think there's a metaphor there somewhere. Right? <laughs> exactly, Daniel, exactly. So, it, like I said, it is a long story, but so family was taken care of, and it's like, okay, I, I don't think I'm going full-time, but the more I did this, and I'd promise the boys, hey, I'll be able to wear a shirt and tie and suit coat or a tux to your wedding, and I would assure Mika, yeah, I can go back and forth. I can put on dockers and a tie for work, and then after a while, I go, I can't do this. I just cannot do this. I never thought that I would have to tell her that, but I, I can't go back and forth anymore. And she understood, it was hard, but she understood. And so what am I gonna do? Because I wanted to pass, let's say it's not being read or not having the public know, oh, there's a, a man in a woman's dress. And so I started thinking about things and there's cranial facial surgery, which makes a tremendous difference because the bony structure of the male face is so much different than the females. And that we started talking about that. And in the interim, one of my co-managers was getting kind of concerned about me because I was struggling. I was still doing a good job, but he could tell that on a personal level, I was hurting. And so we started to talk and I told him, and he goes, you know, you are 
a mess because <laughs> you're productive, you're taking care of the patients and your staff, but you're a mess. And I guess he went and confided to the uh, executive director of the entire department. So I was a little miffed, but on the other hand, it was a good thing. Well, in turn, the executive director went to the HR and spoke to a person there. And so they called me in and I'm going, oh my goodness. Well, it turned out the HR person was incredibly understanding and incredibly sympathetic and very, very knowledgeable. And she really paved the way. But we sat down, we talked a few times, where are you going with this, or where are you going with this? And uh, I said, this is what I want to do. Uh, I'm going to have some surgery and I want to come back and work as Jennifer. And they said, well, we're worried about you now. You, you seem like you're a little bit off. And that, are you taking hormones? I said, wait a minute. You two women are asking me if hormones are making my behavior different? <laughs> I go, that's quite a statement coming from two women. And they go, oh, yeah, I guess we shouldn't play the hormone card. <laughs> I said, no. But uh, they were great. They're understanding. And she actually set up a series of meetings with the C-suite and with managers and eventually my staff. And so I went up to San Francisco. There was a, a very well-known craniofacial surgeon. It's just awesome. And I was up there for about two weeks. And... Uh, I didn't think recovery would take so long, but I went up on Halloween, which was very appropriate. And by Thanksgiving holiday, still wasn't quite presentable, uh, still some bruising and swelling and that type of thing. So they encouraged me to wait talk till the holiday. And then I went back to work and um, I wasn't going full time. I was wearing girl scrub. They had black with a little pink on the neck. It's like, that works. But um, my hair was still growing out. It was a long, long process, but they, got me together with my staff and the staff was so wonderful. They said, oh my gosh, we thought you were like, you know, dying of cancer or something. We're so glad it was this. And uh, we all cried. <laughs> Everybody was crying, but they were so cool and, and so accepting. And that transitional part was hard because I hadn't jumped off the dock into the boat yet. And um, so I went through that period of time from about December and we decided May, the day after Memorial Day, I would go full time. So we were running around and getting a wardrobe and uh, I wanted work dresses. We went through the Memorial holiday. My hair by then was long enough that I could style it femininely. Uh, I remember meeting her early in the morning in HR and walked down to security and I got my new Jennifer picture and name tag. And it was incredible. I'm walking out of there, walking down the hall. She said, Jen, put your name tag on. Oh yeah. Yeah, it was it was very strange, but I felt so good. But it was people there were super nice. There were over two thousand people working there, and everybody was wonderful. But it was still difficult because there are a lot of strangers too, and I'd still be getting double looks and that kind of thing. But you just take it in stride. So I cannot compliment that institution anymore. They were just incredibly supportive, and uh, so I worked there about another year and a half as Jennifer, and it was wonderful experience. So great. Jennifer, if you, as you reflect on that, then what would you say to that young person today who's beginning to discover, or maybe, maybe, maybe beginning to discover isn't the right way to say it. Maybe they're going through their journey and they're discovering more and more. What would you say to them? Go with it, you know, find your support. Uh, it's not easy, but it's easier to, to come out and, and do it. Gosh, if the young kids can 
can transition before they hit puberty, it's so huge mentally and you don't have the physical changes that have to be undone. And you start a new life very early. For people in middle age, it can be done. Don't waste your time. For the teenagers, don't miss that prom. <laughs> you know, don't wait. You have to do some planning and thinking, especially if you're older with responsibilities. But you will not be happy. You will not be healthy. You will be miserable. I met a friend in one of these groups, and she was 150 pounds overweight. She was drinking heavily. She was smoking. She was miserable. She worked for the family business, and she had a wife and a kid. And she started to take hormones, and she let her hair grow out, and she dressed a bit more, um, I guess, a bit more femininely, perhaps, not overtly. And she was so happy. She lost all that weight. She didn't drink anymore. She stopped smoking. Her affect was wonderful. She was so optimistic about life. And then the the biting, the backbiting, the, the nagging, and finally her wife threatened to leave her. So she got rid of everything. She cut her hair. She stopped the hormones. Uh, we kept in touch. And um, the last time I spoke with her, she was 50 pounds overweight. She was drinking way too heavily, and she was miserable. And then I never heard from her again. So if you aren't yourself, no matter what that may be, you're going to pay such a heavy price. It's, it's just so important to be true to yourself and to reach out to people to get that support so you can transition if that's what you want to do. Wonderful story. And now you and Mika are going to translate it into a book. Is that right? Oh, we are. We are so excited about it. It's um. I've been thinking about it for quite a while and people said, oh, got to write a book. It's such an interesting story. You guys were, quote, so normal and it could happen to anybody. So I'm about two thirds of the way done. It kind of traces through my childhood and discovery and undiscovery and rediscovery. But mostly it's, it's a large part of it's a tribute to Mika. This woman did not have to stay. She did not have to go through this. It was not her choice. I had no choice. She had a, a huge choice, but she's been so incredibly strong and supportive and loving and taking care of the family. So the way the book's going to flow is I'll be writing some. And then when I met her, obviously for me, it was wonderful. So we'll have her take. She'll do a chapter on what it was like to meet me. Then I'll go back to writing and then she'll do a chapter. What was it like after the reveal? And what did she go through with that? Because she has some awesome stories and insights. And as we speak, it's not that our memories are different. It's that we fill in each other's gaps. And it's like, oh, did you realize this happened? And it's like, oh my gosh. And just all these revelations, even as of this morning, that we still find out. It was a hectic, crazy transition period, but it was awesome. And uh, she goes, you know, I, I mourn and I grieve because I lost the man, but I gained so much in you as a person. You're such a happy person now. So it's it's very mixed, but it's very, very good. So I think we're, we're working on a title, and uh, I think we're going to call it um, A Journey of Love and Discovery. But we'll see. That's a working title for now. I can't wait to read it. Oh, now, thank you. you mentioned that you lived and worked as Jennifer for about a year and a half before mm -hmm. retiring from Long Beach Memorial. And I... I and, I would love to hear about how you're spending your time in retirement. I think it's there's some really interesting things that you're doing. So oh, it's been, tell us more. I would love to. It's been incredible. I love it. 
I'd planned for so long. And it took a while to extricate because I didn't want to leave Memorial without having a good replacement. And uh, it took a while to find somebody, but I really like who they hired. So I, I think I said I wanted to retire in October and it wasn't until finally August 8th, 2018 that I, I did get to retire. But I've been planning for it for a while. It's like I wanted to make sure I had plenty of activities and friends and new circles of friends. Because I've seen before when you leave a job so often you think you're going to stay in touch, but things change. You go back to work and they're busy working and still friends, but you don't do things together. So I took up yoga of all things. I noticed it was getting difficult to get off the floor in my workshop. Uh, I build furniture, uh, custom furniture, and uh, I have a two-car garage workshop I built. And uh, that's been awesome. But it was getting hard to get down and get up. So I did yoga. And now it's it's been incredible. Group of friends. I'm so much stronger. Uh, so new hobbies like that, trying new things, uh, that was so great. I get to surf, which I love. And that is so restorative. It's like, I don't know, being off in the mountains or something. You're totally away from everybody else when you're out there on the waves. The furniture, the yoga. I play tennis, which is really social. We probably have 30 or 40 people we, we play with. And so there's always a tennis game going on. So very, very physical. Mika's going down to part-time in, in about a month. So that's going to be awesome. awesome. I'll have someone to play with. So it's been a great retirement so far. I did get called back. Matter of fact, that ex-manager that, that stood in for for Kelly after the murder, called me and said, hey, are you going to come and work at a COVID clinic, you know, for a while? I said, part-time only? He goes, yes. So it was a great experience. Again, super great staff to work with. I felt like I was giving back. I wasn't on the sidelines. So that went from about January and we're wrapping it up next week. It'll be the last time we injected a big site. So uh, that was a great experience. So things like that. And then Habitat for Humanity, I knew I wanted to do that. So I joined before I retired, but after I came out as Jennifer. So going to those Habitat meetings, joining the Women's Committee was like a stretch back then. But again, they were so super warm and accepting. And uh, I love doing that kind of thing. So I became a crew leader. So I, I work on the big houses as well as on the Women's Playhouse Committee. So uh, that keeps me busy as well. Uh, great group of people. It sounds like you have a truly rich, in every every meaning of the word, a truly rich retirement. It's congratulations, so congratulations on so many, so so many levels. And with that, that's unfortunately all the time we have today because this has just been a an incredible conversation with Jennifer Moore. Jennifer, I want to thank you for joining us today and taking this time and just being so honest and discussing your journey. Jennifer's article, I'm Transgender, This is What Happened When I Finally Told My Wife, was published in the Los Angeles Times on February 13th, 2021. It was a celebration in February of Valentine's Day, but I think we can all read it again and listen uh, to her amazing story as we celebrate Pride. So join us here at ASHP Official and the Practice Journey podcast as we learn about how LGBTQ pharmacy leaders seek out, grow, and evolve during their lives and careers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues, family, friends, and via your social media of choice. And enjoy Pride 2021. Jennifer, thank you so much. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. 
be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official. Official.